is our first awkward middle school dance relived and illuminated. A dance between the hell of being in the middle of it and pulling back with that funny objective lens that reveals the tragedy of it all. She writes about all those vulnerable moments that we pretend don't make us up, but carry as weighted scars around in our minds. Her work peels back the layers of our most uncomfortable moments, dissecting them in crisp, sensory language that you can't look away from. I'm so happy that she is here tonight, and I cannot wait to see what she will read. Annie Kravenschmidt grew up in San Francisco, but spent the last six or years or so in North Carolina, where she graduated college and received a master's of public policy. It was during her master's program that she came to grasp the importance of storytelling and media in making community. You guys are awesome right now. Let's keep this up. <laughs> While she began her writing career as a comedy writer, she has recently been, been trying to write from a more honest and vulnerable place, which she does very well. She finds people extraordinarily fascinating and worthy of love and empathy in all forms. She has been published in the Blotter Magazine and Memoir Magazine. Dead Rabbits, please welcome Annie Kravenschmidt. the mere suggestion of impolite bodily noises was met with scorn. During the year, I attended a private K-8 school with an immaculate exterior painted white and lined with navy. The school was so pristine that even its attendees appeared to be part of the design scheme. As we walked in two evenly spaced parallel lines from one class to the next, our white-collared shirts tucked in, our hands behind our backs, and our socks never, ever falling below our ankles. The weekends offered me no respite. My parents' social calendar kept my older sister and me busy at yacht club functions, dinner parties. We took elaborate vacations to European cities where we would get dressed up and dine in the world's best restaurants. My innocence spoiled too early when my mom would give the American translation for escargot too late. It was on these trips that I had the first memories of disgruntlement. Even dressed in complimentary patterns, I found a way to ruin almost every family photo with a grimace and an expression I hoped would convey that I was dead inside. <laughs> I longed to be back in my preferred vacation spot at Nonium Pops in Summers, Connecticut. Accompanying Pop as he ran errands that seemed exotic to me, like going to the dump, and getting lost in one of his elaborate stories. Driving around in a Hunter Green truck, listening to a Patsy Cline compilation tape, the two of us would warble about our heartache and our man's cheating heart, nearly getting nearly drunk on our bottles of sarsaparilla soda. A real man's man, he bought me my first Swiss Army pocket knife, and I spent the afternoon. He spent the afternoon in his garage etching his initials into it. He could pass hours out of his bench, smoking pipe tobacco, making all sorts of things with nothing but his tools. And when he made four matching coat racks, heights corresponding to the heights of my older sister, my two younger cousins, and me, I believed I'd never again know such luxury. During one of my many summer breaks spent there, I stared wistfully at cattle farms and cornfields and told my mother that I wanted to live in a town just like summers when I was older. Tight-lipped, she refused to encourage my statement, but was unwilling to spoil my fantasy too soon. My mom grew up in this tiny town, where women took home economics and men took shop. She had a big personality, so big as to be somewhat indecent. She was like an artist without a medium, unable to help the fact that her charisma made her the center of attention. She received multiple detentions for disturbing classes, just by asking the wrong questions or making ill-timed jokes. On some occasions, it was nothing more than the way she carried herself. She was nearly suspended when she addressed the teacher by her first name, Judy. <laughs> Judy. 
Jude, Jude! She exclaimed with accompanying finger guns. But her punishment came because she violated a more literal code of conduct by using a teacher's first name, or because her outburst had too much rhythm as anyone's guess. Had she stayed in summers, her future in town would have closely followed the script of some 1950s magazine advertisement. A never-ending cycle of going to work at Friendly's as a Sunday specialist, and going home to her unair-conditioned room, crying into her red shag carpet about a college boyfriend that cheated on her, until eventually she would marry and move out of her parents' houses and enter her husband's. Somewhere around the age of 22 or 23, she packed up and left with no intention of returning. Her parents made it clear that they would offer no support, financial or emotional, and their prediction was that she would be back within six months. They were betting against her. She borrowed $600 from her cousin and aimed for California without a job or a place to live. San Francisco would have been the perfect place for her, one where she walked crisp city streets with oversized sunglasses and where no one would bat an eye at someone feeling eccentric enough to wear a beret and mascot. My mom must have looked at the Golden Gate Bridge and seen a gateway to her very destiny. I saw and thought a little bit about death. That's not so surprising considering the iconography of the landmark, but as a teenager I wondered how much thinking was too much. It's not that I was necessarily suicidal, but I was pretty sure that few of my classmates had to reassure themselves that they weren't. I went from being a grimacing adolescent to a grimacing teenager. I sulked, I despaired, I briefly starved myself. I would experience bouts of inescapable discomfort with my life. Playing soccer was almost the only thing that brought me any joy. I wasn't a particularly strong player, and yet I felt that there was nothing else I could do in this universe. Because soccer season meant shorts, grass stains, mud, and a team-wide loyalty to men's deodorant, even from the pretty girls. At my parents' social events, which I was somehow expected to attend showered and dressed, I felt that I was watching my life from the fourth wall, an outsider who belonged anywhere but in that living room, with groups of parents getting drunk enough to begin a sing-along. I wondered if anyone cared that it was a school night for me. All my life there seemed to be a social code I couldn't crack. With the same rigor of a finishing school curriculum presenting all 25 levels of English peerage, my mom tried to teach me to keep track of divorces, facelifts, and civil forfeitures, but I couldn't understand the world. After my first week of college, I realized that at least part of my misunderstanding had to do with the fact that I was, and had all this time, been gay. Things clicked into place. My sulking, my misery, my inability to understand my mother's wardrobe requirements, all mostly explained by my repressed sexuality. And then I fell in love. And while I'd always thought of myself as emotionally blunt, snide, sarcastic, and frankly mean, falling in love made me permanently soft. In the fall of my junior year of college, Pop started to get really sick. He hadn't really been well for years. As a man already prone to watching five hours of westerns on television, he slowly became both couch-ridden and couch-like, sagging in his cheeks, his ears, his lower eyelids. He was barely recognizable to us and we to him. And that same fall, I had secretly begun dating my first girlfriend. I felt the weight of this secret as it marked a severe departure from my parents' plans for me. And then again, college-aged kids keep, start keeping all sorts of secrets from their parents. Bad grades, binges, assaults, depressions, girlfriends. It's an awkward time for the impious. And when my mom called one morning on her way to visit Pop, she wondered if I'd like to join her, and suddenly I heard myself saying, yes. I was living a secret life, an entire love story unfolding unbeknownst to my mom, and yet while there was still a huge gulf between us, at least I had a better understanding of what made me so different. We were, if we were gonna build a bridge, then at least I knew where to begin building. It had been years since the garage was filled with pipe tobacco. Still, it was jarring to drive up that front way and know that my grandfather wasn't inside and was instead at a hospital down the road. I was advised not to visit him because he didn't recognize anyone and said nasty things to people helping him. 
I decided to go, mostly for my mom's benefit, but also thinking he might like to know I cared. The moment I walked in the room, he looked straight at me and smiled however widely he could, and with full recognition asked, what are you doing here? I wasn't expecting that. His sudden brightness upended plans I had to stay cool. How do you bury someone who suddenly comes to life? And I told him, or tried to through tears, that I was there to bust him out. My motorcycle was parked out front, and we were going to drive away together. He was a man who loved tall tales, and it seemed the only fitting explanation I could give him. And just as I started to believe it myself, the room returned to its reality. In his hospital bed, Pop looked deflated. He had needed to lose weight, but it looked as if someone had just scooped half of him away, a couch without cushions. He was thirsty, begging for water, and the nurse gave him a wet sponge to suck on, and it suddenly seemed very important to leave at once. I hugged him and choked out my goodbye, hating what that word meant in, under such circumstances. My mom and I shared her childhood bedroom that weekend in Connecticut. I had my own twin bed across the hall, but it was nice to share this piece of her. On my mom's bed, we leafed through her yearbook, and there she was with her big hair and fake tan, looking beloved even in photographs, if that can be possible. Somewhere near the back of the book, a note was scrawled around a senior's headshot. The note from Rita, who bore a strong resemblance to Dorothy from the Golden Girls, started, Don, you dear thing, you. Oh, Rita, my mom sighed. She used to pick me up on her moped scooter. We would ride around town all night. We had a hoot. And then these words. Oh, I love that big old lesbian. As a child, I had never met a lesbian. And I assumed that my mom hadn't either. At best, my town had a beloved gay hairdresser, Christopher, but everyone knows that's different. I've never owned a hairdryer in my life. My mother was a socialite. World's most gracious host, timeless style, knows exact purpose of each wine glass she owns. I was a tomboy, t-ball champion, tree climber, obsessed with construction. The conflict that occurred between us over my wardrobe, my etiquette, my demeanor, was like a constant silent brooding. And the subtext was that she was just waiting for me to grow up, to finally be the daughter she's been shopping for her whole life. She escaped a world where womanhood was synonymous with being meek and subservient, and entered a world where she could live in full color. When she first arrived in San Francisco, one of her three jobs she took in exchange for clothing. She carried herself through the city broke but well-dressed. Quick in her wake was the shadow of summers. Kids who lived there for life, parents who believed she would fail. The clothing, the niceties, these were her armor. But on her bed, looking through her class of 78 yearbook, I saw her briefly as others do. Warm, a friend to all, open-minded and non-judgmental. I had worried about coming out to her, but hearing that she rode on the back of Rita's scooter, presumably with her arms tightly wrapped around a lesbian, I knew that she was the kind of person who could parent her gay child. We spent the weekend together in her New England town, doing things I always thought were myths of a time gone by. As it turns out, corn mazes are very much a community event. We stopped at an apple farm, which had an apple souvenir shop run out of the back. We found the one dozen apple cider donuts, and while we barreled through all 12, I looked at her like there was no better delicacy in all the world, and she looked at me like she'd always meant to tell me so. That weekend, I caught a glimpse of the girl pointing finger guns and getting in trouble, who was trying to make her way in the world just like I was. My grandpa died, as grandparents do. And a week after the funeral, I went home for Thanksgiving. On Wednesday, I came out to my family and only my sister was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> On Thursday, we went to a very typical Marin County Thanksgiving party, and for the first time, I felt like I was in the hoops with my family. We now shared a secret. When we got home, my mom and I were in her bathroom, and she flitted roughly about until she just stopped and burst into tears. I scooped up into my arms like there was no gulf between us at all. I miss my dad, she cried. 
Her father hadn't really been himself for a year, so missing him in that moment didn't make much sense, but death evades logic, and dead parents make daughters out of all of us. Some connections need a time machine and a moped scooter, because she still doesn't fully understand me as a human. There are times that I come home and my mom has three new dresses she would like me to try on. And as I step out of my room in a button-down flannel instead, I see her look me up and down before deciding whether it's too late in my life to instill a crucial life lesson. She'll propose from time to time that I could be the kind of lesbian who wears a skirt, you know? <laughs> There's no amount of explanation that I could give that would convince her that skirts go against every aspect of my being, lesbian or not. The universe hands us oddly wrapped gifts. It was precisely in the context of a sad hospital visit that I shared one of the best weekends I've ever spent with my mom. And if I were my mother's classmate, I probably would have called her dear thing. 30 years earlier, she might have even been my friend. Our only real problem was that I was her daughter and she was my mother, and we are to this day, two people who dare to dream of an elsewhere far from home.